Well, we find ourselves in a series we're calling There's No Place Like Home. We have had one message in the series on marriage, and today will give us a second message on marriage. Just by way of review, let me remind you what we've seen already in a previous sermon. We have seen that marriage's measure is oneness. We have seen that marriage's method has four parts to it. First, leaving and cleaving. That's the husband's responsibility to leave and to cleave. The third part of the process of the method is submitting or respecting. That is the wife's role in the marriage to submit to her husband and respect her husband. And the fourth part of the four parts of the method is loving, that every husband has been called to love his respective wife with sacrificial love. And of course, all of that method, all of those four things, the leaving and the cleaving and the submitting and the loving are supernatural jobs. And left to ourselves and our own devices and our own efforts, we would be miserable failures at all four of these parts of the method. But when the Holy Spirit lives inside of us and controls us and empowers us and strengthens us, we can do the kind of leaving and cleaving and submitting and loving that God has designed as the method for all marriages. The third thing we saw in the, in the first message on uh, marriage is that marriage has a message. And the message of marriage, every marriage, is to show those who look in upon that marriage how Jesus Christ and his church interact. Namely, when people look at your marriage from the outside, they should see a husband who is sacrificially loving his wife just as Jesus Christ sacrificially loves the church. And someone looking into your marriage should see you, the wife, submitting to the husband in the same manner that the church of Jesus Christ submits to the head of the church, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the message of marriage is how Christ and the church are to interact. And the fourth point we saw last time is marriage's makeover. Many times, we who are in marriages or we who are contemplating going into a marriage, we have to have a makeover of what we expect is the reason that we would get married or the reason that we have been married. So often you hear someone say that the primary reason for being married is happiness. The problem with that is that happiness depends on happenings. And we all know there are ups and downs, mountaintops and valleys in every single marriage in life. And so if marriage is all about happiness first, then we can judge ourselves to be abject failures if we don't feel happy. And so I have people come to me who name the name of Christ as Lord and Savior. I don't feel love for my spouse anymore. Feelings make a good caboose to the train, but feelings make a lousy engine to the train. Because feelings fluctuate. Feelings blow hot and blow cold. And if you are looking at your marriage, and if I am looking at my marriage as the principal thing about it is happiness, then you're wrong. God gave you a husband or God gave you a wife, not principally so that you would be happy, but he gave you that gift of a spouse so you'd be more holy. And if you want to discover just the level of your depravity and your need of Jesus Christ, then get married. You'll soon find out. 
how much you fall short as a sinner saved by grace. And God means for our marriages to advance our holiness. I try to see God as my father-in-law because I'm married to his daughter, God the Father's daughter. And so my job is to sacrificially love Beth in such a way that she becomes more holy with time. So sometimes we need a makeover as to what our marriages are striving for. What's the point of them? It's holiness, holiness. Gary Thomas, who wrote a wonderful book called Sacred Marriage, said, what if God designed marriage to make us holy more than to make us happy? That's a good question. Well, moving from the uh, measure of marriage, oneness, and the method of marriage, leaving, cleaving, submitting, and loving, moving from marriage's makeover to the advancement of holiness over the advancement of happiness, we come to four more points on marriage, all beginning with the letter M. Marriage's monument, marriage's maintenance, marriage's mortar, and marriage's missiles. Let's take up marriage's monument. The monument of marriage, as defined by Scripture, is till death us do part. God's ideal for marriage is until death us do part. God's ideal for marriage is not divorce. When they came to Jesus in his earthly ministry and asked him about marriage and divorce, he said in Luke 16, 18, everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Jesus said the same thing in Mark chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. In the Old Testament, God is clearly uh, depicted as having a stance on divorce. In Malachi 2, verse 16, God speaking, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God in the Old Testament says that he hates divorce, and those that embark upon it deal treacherously with their mate or their spouse. So the monument of marriage is till death us do part. I've given you illustration last marriage sermon that cleaving in the Hebrew idea of cleaving is to glue together two things inseparably. And I talked about getting two planks of wood from JBR build and getting these planks of wood and buying some industrial strength glue for wood and then slathering that glue on both planks, the full lengths of both planks, clamping them together in your backyard in the heat for two weeks and then seeking to separate the planks. They're cleaving to each other. I suppose you could take the planks apart, but it would take a sledgehammer and a crowbar And if you were to work hard to get the planks separated, you would find that plank A would be all over plank B in pieces, and plank B would be all over plank A in pieces, neither one of the planks being what they used to be before they were busted apart. In many ways, divorce is harder than death because the corpse walks around in your life, especially the children's lives. And so marriage is monument is till death us do part. When you think about both the Old and the New Testaments, 
when God's people in the Old Testament failed him, God did not divorce Israel. And when you think of the New Testament, the church age in which we live, similarly, when the church of Jesus Christ fails Christ, and often we do, and all the churches pretty well in Revelations chapters 2 and 3 of the ancient churches of Asia Minor, they failed the Lord. But in both cases, in both testaments, God did not divorce Israel in the Old Testament, and God did not divorce the church in the New Testament. Let me just give you a real poignant example of this in the Old Testament. God told his prophet Hosea that he should marry a known prostitute. Her name was Gomer. And Hosea was told to marry Gomer, the known prostitute, to be an object lesson, a visual for the nation of Israel that were committing spiritual harlotries, spiritual prostitution with idols other than the true and living God. And God says to Hosea, you marry Gomer. I know she's a prostitute. You know she's a prostitute. I want you to marry her. And so in obedience, Hosea married Gomer, and she did all of her prostituting after the the wedding. All through their marriage, she prostituted and eventually drifted away from Hosea, and he had an estrangement with his prostitute wife. But then when the man who made money off of Gomer's prostitution was finished with her, he put her in a slave marketplace, and she was up for sale to the highest bidder. And God instructed Hosea to go to that slave marketplace and to bid to buy back his wife. That took faith. That took love. And he did. He paid the necessary price and he bought his wife and he brought her home and he loved her and he nurtured her and he helped her back to a moral life as his wife. And God had Homer, Gomer and Hosea have that kind of a relationship and recorded it in the Old Testament book of Hosea so that we would understand that God doesn't divorce Israel. And then when you look at the New Testament and you think about how we fail Christ as ch- the church, it says in 2 Timothy 2, 11 to 13, and it is a trustworthy statement for if we died with him, we also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. That's the millennial kingdom, have a reign in the millennial kingdom with Christ. If we deny him, he will also deny us. What the context tells us, he will deny us a measure of his rulership in the future kingdom. That will be the punishment for denying him in this age. But then it goes on to say, just in case we missed that God doesn't divorce a faithless bride of Christ. It says, if we are faithless, he remains faithful. Aren't you glad? How often I have been faithless as a child of God's, as a pastor. I have fallen into sin and I have disappointed Jesus Christ, but he doesn't divorce me. He loves me. And if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. And so in our home, in Beth and my home in marriage, we have always seen divorce as a swear word. When we were in pre-marriage counseling, we decided in that time, before we ever exchanged vows, that for us in our home, divorce would be a swear word. And we would never use the word cavalierly or casually or as a threat. Never. It is a swear word in our family. 
And that secures our children, and it secures each other. And so you say, how do I safeguard my marriage? I know God hates divorce. I don't want a divorce. It looks like I'm going down the path of divorce, or I don't ever want to go down that path. What should I do? Let me give you three things to do. First, reverence God. Reverence God. Have a holy, respectful fear of God. If you want to divorce-proof your marriage, not only reverence God, but commit to keeping your wedding vows. You know, when you say a wedding vow on the day of your wedding, it has to be ratified every day that I'm keeping myself only for Beth that I'll love her in good times and bad times, in richness and in poverty, in sickness and in health. That has to be ratified in my heart daily. I have to keep my wedding vows. And so do you who are married. The third safeguard against divorce is to see your marriage as something in which which you must be diligent, not slack, not careless, but diligent. Have you ever thought that if you look across and you see grass that is greener on the other side of the fence, that maybe the grass looks greener from the other side of the fence but has chinch bugs in the roots? Have you ever thought when Satan has tempted you to look across the fence at another woman or another man who's in a marriage that maybe the grass is greener on the other side of the fence because it's over a septic bed? What would happen if in diligence we looked at the the grass being greener for a moment and turned and stared at our own grass and committed ourselves to watering our own grass and fertilizing our own grass and making it green. That takes diligence. Three safeguards against divorce then. Reverence, fear God, commitment, keep your wedding vows, don't see divorce as an option, and diligence, don't admire the greener grass over the fence. Instead, water and fertilize your grass. Again, Gary Thomas from Sacred Marriage. A good marriage isn't something you find. It's something you make. A good marriage is something you make. Okay, so the first point this morning is marriage's monument till death us depart. Let's move to marriage's maintenance. Marriage's maintenance is forgiveness. The maintenance that every marriage requires is forgiveness. That wonderful passage from 1 Corinthians 13 that we hear read very appropriately at many weddings. Listen to this passage in the, with the viewpoint of how the things listed in this loving passage contribute to forgiveness. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails. 
If your marriage is going to be properly maintained, you must constantly, immediately, completely forgive your spouse when you're hurt. Forgiveness is marriage's maintenance. In Ephesians 4, verse 32, in the epistle to the ancient church at Ephesus, but by extension to each of us who are listening and who are married, it says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So when you are faced with the challenge, should I forgive my wife for that? Should I forgive my husband for that? How has Christ forgiven you? You should forgive as he's forgiven you. Forgiveness is the regular maintenance of marriage. Billy Graham was married to Ruth Bell Graham until she went to heaven. And this is what she said on, on marriage. Mrs. Graham said, a happy marriage is the union of two good forgivers. Boy, is that true? Marriage that's happy is a union of two good forgivers. We have a church, SUV, that we're so grateful to have the use of, and we service it at Bahamas Bus and Truck. And there's a sticker on the inside of the windshield in the upper left corner that tells me when the mileage is at the point that it needs an oil change. And I would be a fool if I didn't take it in for an oil change when I'm supposed to. Because the driving conditions here are hot. Stop and go traffic, mostly stop traffic. And so I would be a fool not to get regular service maintenance on the church's SUV, an oil change. We would be fools who are married if we do not regularly stop and give the maintenance to marriage that is required, which is forgiveness. None of us should go to bed any night harboring anything against our mate of which we will not forgive. Even if our mate doesn't ask us for forgiveness. Not being forgiving is drinking the poison you hope will kill someone else. That's what unforgiveness is. Marriage is monument till death us depart. Marriage is maintenance, forgiveness. Marriage is mortar. You've seen, as I have seen, the, the concrete blocks around the island that are built into walls, sometimes walls around public schools, sometimes walls in homes, that concrete block. And you see the people that are putting that wall together. They have mortar. They have cement that they are lavishly putting between the concrete blocks and making them set up square with a plumb line. And then they dry and they harden and the wall is stable the mortar, the cement of your marriage is Christ. Christ is the mortar of the marriage always. Christ is the mortar. He's the glue. He's the one that brings the stability. He's the one that helps us stand against the hurricane gales. He's the mortar. Has he been given the rightful place in your marriage of being the mortar? In Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12, 
Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. A cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. Do you have the third strand in your marriage of the Lord Jesus Christ? When you braid with each other and him, you will not easily be torn apart. You might look at it this way. If there's a big triangle here, and the apex point of the, of the equal-sided triangle is Christ, and on this corner is the husband, and on this corner is the wife. The family, the marriage that will stand the test of time, which has the mortar of Jesus Christ, is seeing both the husband and the wife moving up the pyramid toward Christ mutually, and as they get closer to Christ mutually, they're getting closer to Christ and each other. As the lines converge to the point of the triangle who is Christ, that as both the married partners go up that triangle, both going closer to Jesus, they are also going closer to each other. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking. Maybe a man told you he was a Christian and he was a fraud. And you found out after you married him that he was a fraud. I hear that all the time. It is so wrong and sad. But let's say you're here today and you say, okay, I'd love it, Pastor. If I would move closer to Christ and my husband would move closer to Christ and we move closer to each other and Christ be the mortar of our marriage, I would love that, Pastor. But my husband has no interest in Christ. He has no interest or respect for the Bible. What about that? Then I would tell you with love, then you work your way up the side of the triangle to as close as you can get to Jesus Christ without your husband or without your wife. And you pray as you're ascending that triangle side to the point of Jesus Christ. You call out to God in prayer to change your husband's heart, to save his soul, or to save your wife's heart and to save her soul. The mortar of marriage is Christ. Fourth and last, marriage is missiles. You do realize when God has left marriage as the only thing on earth to illustrate Christ's relationship with the church, that Satan hates marriage. Marriages are under satanic attack all the time because God wants your marriage to fail and God wants my marriage to fail, or Satan wants my marriage to fail. Why? Because Satan doesn't want an accurate picture of Christ's relationship with the church in society. And so he shoots missiles. Satan has an arsenal of miss missiles that he shoots at our marriages, and I just want to cover some of them in haste. The first missile that Satan fires at your marriage to destroy it is Satan himself. Jesus told us about Satan in John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, so Satan is a murderer. He wants to kill your marriage. 
He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Satan is a murderer. He wants to kill your marriage, and Satan is a liar. Oh, he couldn't possibly forgive me after what I've done. Take me back. Oh, she could never possibly forgive me after what I've done and take me back. Satan is a liar and a murderer, but that's not all. According to Revelation 12, verse 10, Satan is also an accuser. And then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his, of his Christ have come for the accuser of the brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. You do know that Satan accuses you before the throne of grace and the Lord Jesus Christ and God the Father constantly. See Elliot down there? What kind of a father is he? What kind of a pastor is he? Hear what he was considering doing? Jesus Christ says, yes, I know. I know, Rob. I've died for him. I've shed my blood for all of his sins, past, present, and future. And so we have an advocate in the Lord Jesus Christ at the right hand of God the Father. But Satan doesn't want us to think about that. He just wants to hammer us with accusation, 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 so we just want to throw in the towel. first missile is Satan himself with his murderous plans, his lies, and his accusations. The second missile is an inside job. Satan is an outside job into our marriages. Flesh is an inside job within the wife and within the husband. And flesh is a controller. Flesh is a chameleon. Flesh wants and strives after control of everything and that control of everything only belongs with God, the Holy Spirit. And so flesh, my flesh, your flesh, it's unable to glorify God. And if I live my married life in my flesh, God will not be glorified. In 1 John 2.16 it talks about the three categories of temptation that are common. You know, Satan is not creative. Uh, he can create nothing. He only counterfeits what God has created. And in 1 John 2.16, because he's in a rut, because he only tempts in three categories, he started with Eve in the Garden of Eden in these categories. These are the categories. 1 John 2.16, for all that is in the world... The lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but is in the world. And so the flesh is a controller. The flesh is what panders to the world and the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. Again, Satan is not creative. God is creative. Satan only counterfeits and smudges and puts graffiti over what God has created beautiful. 
So we have Satan as a missile. We have our flesh as a missile. We have the world as a missile. Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. I've taught you before that this is not the world of the continents, Asia, Australia, South America. That's not the world in view here. The world that is in view here is a worldview, a way of interpreting life, a way of doing life in our heads. And the world system, the worldview, is the one that cheerfully leaves Jesus Christ completely out of everything. Friday night, our family went to Marathon Mall and went to the food court to grab some dinner. And as I walked into the Marathon Mall food court, I saw several tables all shoved together in a long line. And I looked, and it caught my attention. There were 20-some people at that table, and all of them had an open Bible. And there was a Bible teacher in the middle of the group, and he was teaching the Bible in the food court of Marathon Mall. And I said, praise the Lord, because that activity is illegal in Canada. That activity is illegal in the United States. The world view, the world view that cheerfully and completely leaves Jesus Christ out of everything is a missile that Satan sends toward your marriage and mine. And it talks about the women's liberation movement. That's a worldview. God has made men and women equal but different. Not equal and the same. Viva la différence. The worldview of sweethearting, what, what a travesty, what a grievance to God, the Holy Spirit's holiness, that there be sweethearting in this country. That's a worldview. That people would cohabitate before they get married. That's how the world does things, that cheerfully leaves Jesus Christ out of everything. It's not how the body and the bride of Christ are to behave. Not to live together under the same roof. Before you married, I've confronted Christians in this congregation about doing that, and they say, well, we don't have sex. I said, how does anybody else know that? Come on. The world. Absent fathers. Men who are good at making babies and not good at standing with those babies and their mothers and raising children. The world. It's a world view. And the world has the view to cheerfully and completely leave Jesus out of everything. Missile of Satan, missile of flesh, missile of the world, missile of aloneness, aloneness. You do realize that when God created everything he did out of nothing by the word of his mouth, he deemed everything to be good. But there was one thing he deemed not to be good. After he deemed everything he made to be good, there was one thing, the first thing that God deemed not to be good. And Genesis 2.18 tells us, then the Lord God said, it is not good 
for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable for him. God looked at his creation, everything he made and said it was good. He looked down on Adam, the first human being he made. He saw his aloneness and he said, that's not good. And yet we tolerate aloneness in our marriages. We are fine with aloneness in our marriages. We have separation of money and bank accounts. We have different friends from each other. We parent in a different parenting style. We go on separate vacations. We attend separate churches. Aloneness, aloneness, aloneness. And yet God looked at Adam and said that he was alone, and it's not good. But that's a missile that Satan fires at your marriage and mine. Anything that we do in our marriage that promotes aloneness isn't from God. Everything we choose to do that promotes oneness is from God. God will not bless aloneness. He said it's no good. Missiles, Satan, flesh, the world, aloneness. How about selfishness? Selfishness. That's a big one. Selfishness. Philippians 2, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. It is the humble thing to do. It is the marriage-building thing to do to put your mate's interests ahead of your own interests. That's supernatural. But it's possible. When husbands fail to do the first two things they're supposed to do when they walk away from the marriage altar, which is to leave their parents and to cleave to their wives, when we fail to do that, we are selfish. And wives, when you walk away from the altar and you refuse to stand under the servant leadership of your husband, you are being selfish. And selfishness is a missile of Satan to torpedo our marriages. The next missile, laziness, surrender, boredom, no time or money being invested you know, I've had a few vegetable gardens in my time. And, of course, you seed them in the spring, and you water them, and God's spring rains water them, and the heat comes up, and they germinate, and there's little plants of tomato and beans and lettuce and radishes and all these different things. I suppose cassava, too. But you know what happens in every vegetable garden is that a weed appears, one weed. And you say, man, it's hot. And I really don't feel like bending over to pull that weed. It'll be all right. And then I come back two or three days later, and there's five weeds. I go, it's all right, it's still hot. And before I know it, if I do nothing, doing nothing is something, because doing nothing with weeds lets them propagate and multiply and take over. Our marriages are like vegetable gardens. And weeds spring up in the vegetable garden of our marriages because we're both sinners saved by grace. We both have flesh. We've got missiles coming at us from Satan. And we must together pull the weeds or they take over. 
Proverbs 24, listen to the danger of laziness in the example of a vineyard. I passed by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and I received instruction. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. And then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. Isn't that the way it is when our marriages are compared to vineyards? that if we don't maintain them by pulling out the weeds, if we just take a little sleep, if we just take a little um, slumber in our marriage relationship, if we just do a little folding of our hands and coasting on our previous laurels, if we just don't do much work, if we're bored, if we're, if we're lazy, then the weeds spring up. Oh, there's a lot of missiles Satan uses. He uses himself, he uses our flesh and the world, aloneness and selfishness and laziness. And he also uses, this is one of his big ones, Unforgiveness, bitterness. Ephesians 4, 26 and following. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on, on your anger and give the devil an opportunity. Let me just say, Jesus commands us in some regard to be angry and not to sin. So there must be a way to be angry and not to sin. The Greek word here for anger is orge, Orge. Orge anger is what you and I felt when our news reported that an eight-month-old baby was shot dead in Baintown. That was orge anger. Righteous indignation anger. But even righteous indignation anger, if left too long after sundown, the day you experience it, it becomes something else. It becomes bitterness. Par orgasmas anger is Orge anger, righteous indignation anger that's gotten stale and past the date of expiration. I have a real thing about ever thinking about drinking sour milk. I need therapy, Pastor Annette. I really need some help with that. So when we buy milk, I check the date of expiration on that milk like you wouldn't believe. I never want sour milk to go on my lips again. God says there's an expiration date on even righteous indignation anger, and it's the sundown of the day you feel the righteous indignation anger. Because God says if you let the sun set on your righteous indignation anger, the, many, the more you have sunsets where you do that, you become embittered. Embittered. But there's a third kind of anger. Orge, righteous indignation. Par orgasmas, stale, out of expiration date, righteous indignation. And then there's thumas anger. Ready? Let all bitterness and wrath, that's thumas, wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. If we move from orge anger, righteous indignation, to par orgasmas anger, which is dated, righteous indignation, anger, we are on our way to thumas. Thumas anger is what causes a driver in the United States at a red light to get out and shoot the person ahead of them dead. Road rage. Irrational. What causes a person to murder his whole family. Thumas. And it all starts with not processing even legitimate anger. 
You and I must not let the sun set with an angry heart, even one sunset. We must forgive people who have made us angry even if they don't ask us for forgiveness. Unforgiveness and scorekeeping and bitterness are a big missile that Satan uses against our marriages. And you do know that unforgiveness is drinking the poison you hope will kill the other person. If you harbor unforgiveness long enough, it will debilitate you. The next missile I want to share is irresponsibility. You can have irresponsible wives and mothers, but I found out more irresponsible husbands and fathers in my years. An irresponsibility about leadership. If I had a dollar for every Christian woman who said, I would love it if my husband would lead our family spiritually, but he won't. He refuses. And if we're going to have a Bible time of reading in our family, I have to do it, Pastor. What about that? We need Christian men that will step up and be responsible. Responsible servant leaders of their wives and children. Responsible in doing the chores around the house. (laughs) We've had ministries in other churches where we have sent deacons to other people's houses in our congregation, and the men, the Christian men who have a dilapidated house have just sat there and watched the men of our church fix his house. Come on. Be responsible. Then the church. You know I love all of you, but what percentage of the workers in our assembly are women? We're grateful for them, but what percentage? I think it's more than the men. These are missiles that Satan fires at our marriages that, oh, she'll do it. I can leave that with her. I'm tired. I don't know how to lead. Another missile is failure to grow and to mature as a person. If any one of us starts to fail to grow or to mature as a husband or as a wife, we're dying. You know, some school teachers that teach for 25 years really have only taught for one year, and they've repeated it 25 times. Other teachers who are growing and maturing in their profession, when they have taught 25 years, they have taught 25 years. Are you growing? Are you maturing as a Christian? Thomas, again, I'm quoting him a lot today, I wouldn't be surprised if many marriages end in divorce largely because one or both of the partners are running from their own revealed weaknesses as much as they are running from something they can't tolerate in their spouse. Remember, marriage is given not to make us happy first, it's make us holy first. And when your spouse holds up a mirror by just being your spouse and shows you who you are and how you fail and how you are inadequate. You have a choice. Either face what needs to be changed, ask God to help you to change, or to walk. To walk out. When we fail to grow and to mature, sometimes it's because we have a poor focus. Philippians 3, 12 to 14 Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on, that's growing, I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. 
Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on, that's growing and maturing, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Husbands and wives are to be growing and maturing in salvation in Christ. So sometimes the issue is a a poor focus. Other times the issue is you think it's a walk in the park when it's a rigorous athletic activity. These walks that raise funds on Saturdays, I see them often. You better believe that people who walk in those fundraising walks need water. If they just go and say, I don't need water and reject water that's offered to them, they're going to have a hard time. They're going to dehydrate. Some of us look at the Christian life, which is far more than a walk on a Saturday to raise money for a cause. Some of us look at our Christian lives as that doesn't really matter how we exert. doesn't really matter if we wind up winning or losing or having a draw. Listen to this. 1 Corinthians 9, the great apostle Paul, 24 to 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. All of our lives, married or unmarried, are races. And Christ wants us each to run our individual races so that we will win. Going on, everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They then do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim, I box. Now he's changed the metaphor from running to boxing. I box in such a way as not beating the air. The boxer who jumps in the ring has had no training, Forgets whatever he did know about boxing is going to be flat on his back on the mat, out cold, in one round. The Christian life is a boxing match. Satan is firing all these missiles at all of us. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified. The great apostle Paul wrote that. Missiles. Satan, flesh, the world, aloneness, selfishness, laziness, unforgiveness, failure to grow and mature as a person, irresponsibility, and the last one, is a rejection of Ephesians chapter 5's roles for husbands and wives. In Ephesians chapter 5, women are called to hupotasso, to stand under their husbands, not as a doormat, but as a functional subordinate to the working of the, fa- of the marriage. Stand under your husband, and that looks like respect. In Ephesians 5, the one job that God gives to us husbands is to love our wives, agape, the highest kind of love, the love that discerns the greatest need in the one who is loved and then sacrifices to meet that need without consideration of the cost or the payback. When a wife respectfully stands under her husband, God is pleased. And when a husband 
lovingly sacrifices to meet the legitimate needs of his wife, God is pleased. But when a wife says, I will not submit, or the husband says, I will not sacrifice and love her, God is grieved. And the picture that the marriage is to be of Christ's relationship to the church has graffiti sprayed all over it. Marriage's monument, till death us do part. Marriage's maintenance, forgiveness. Marriage's mortar, Christ. Marriage's missiles, well, they're many. God has all that any of us need to succeed in our marriages. It is his will for every marriage here in the sound of my voice to succeed according to heaven's measurement. Be of good cheer. You say, but I've been blowing it, Pastor. I've been blowing it for 10 years. I've been blowing it for 15 or 20 or 25 or 35 or 55 years. I've been blowing it, Pastor. Today is the first day of the rest of your marriage. And if your spouse is still alive and you are still alive, there's still hope to change. But you have to make the choice. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the hope we find in the gospel, the hope we find in the word, the hope we find in the Holy Spirit. I thank you, Lord, for the marriages that are before us today that are doing well. May you be glorified as proper decisions are made going forward. And we also pray, Lord, for the marriages that are just stale, hanging on. Lord, inject new life and new purpose. And God, for the precious marriages that are on the rocks, someone's gone to the attorney wanting a divorce. Lord, bring it around. Bring about a heart change. Bring about a forgiving. Bring about a hope that in Jesus Christ all things are possible. Lord, these are our prayers. We know you've heard us for Jesus' sake. Amen.